16 some years ago, a woman named Zemienus set out to find treatment and care for her son. He'd received an autism diagnosis in England, but when Yenus moved to Ethiopia, she soon realized that she was almost entirely on her own. Though she knew relatively little about autism at the time, the medical professionals and educators around her seemed to know even less. Determined to do something about that situation, she founded an institution called the Joy Center, where she, and now others, worked to make a difference in the lives of children with autism. It wasn't easy, especially at first. When we started as well, we didn't know much about autism. Uh, I mean, we didn't know how to treat autism and how to treat children with what autism. So uh, that's how it started. We started small, uh, with very, very small knowledge and very limited uh, resource. And, you know, from there, we pushed forward and here we are. (laughs) Similar progress has played out elsewhere in the world. In France, for example, the study and treatment of autism once lagged behind, but as psychiatrist Richard Delorme says, it's now starting to catch up thanks to a growing focus on scientific research, as well as an increased commitment to international standards of diagnosis and care. The current government and the previous one have done a lot to uh, try to uh, to improve the way people have access to uh, better diagnosis and, and better treatment. So there are many actions that have been done. You're listening to Spectrum Stories, the podcast from Spectrum, the leading source for news and expert opinion on autism research. I'm Jacob Brogan. In this episode, we're looking at two different international stories of autism. One is about Ethiopia, where stigmas and superstitions have long occluded attempts to understand and care for individuals on the spectrum. The other is about France, where the shadow of unscientific psychoanalytic theory has created similar challenges. Different as the two countries are, The experience of autism sometimes overlaps between them. Let's talk about Ethiopia first. Back when Yenus first founded the Joy Center, Waganesh Zaleka was a graduate student at Addis Ababa University. Today, Zaleka is an assistant professor at Duquesne University. She told me that Yenus's familiarity with autism was unusual at the time. When she was looking school for her son, she couldn't able to find a place where he can be um, treated with his special needs. Uh, but at that time, she was aware that of autism, and she knows that her child has autism. But that time, no one knows about autism, especially from the public perspective. Even at the university level, I was a graduate student at Adisaba University in the Department of Psychology, But we were not that much aware. Awareness was even lower outside of academia. A decade later, Rosa Hoekstra, now a lecturer at King's College London, set out to develop a curriculum for healthcare workers operating in rural Ethiopia. These health workers were so far never trained on mental health, let alone developmental disorders. So they had no knowledge. They had very basic health knowledge, but no knowledge about mental health and no knowledge or experience at all with developmental disorders. According to Zaleka, the problem wasn't just that healthcare workers weren't receiving training. The main challenge is also the stigma related to mental health. Uh, parents are not uh, comfortable to talk about that, and there is no access for service for these kids and the family in many ways, including public transportation or educational access. Even uh, medical treatment 
at some point. As Janus learned firsthand, those stigmas can be especially damaging where autism is concerned, partly because many in the region still believe it has magical roots. People understood autism was a curse. For many, you know, they were telling us to do praying for them because they think that the uh, evil eyes, which was doing all this, uh, children were confined uh, behind doors at home. They were uh, chained and they were, you know, tied with ropes. The fact that there was no school in Ethiopia for them was stigma by itself. Uh, parents were not at ease to take out uh, their children to, for, you know, for socializing. Even they were not uh, at ease to talk about their children's uh, uh, situation uh, because of you know, the behavior they show. Parents preferred to keep them at home instead of you know, taking them out with their uh, siblings or with their peers. It's very common for autism and other developmental disorders to be ascribed to witchcraft or a curse or a sin. And so in that explanation of the causes of a child's autism, you could attribute the cause to the parents. So the parent has sinned and that's why they have a child with autism or the parent has spoiled a child and that's why they're showing a challenging behavior or uh, there's been a curse placed on the family because of misdemeanors. So many families are blamed for their child's condition, especially primary caregivers, who then feel the need to exclude their child from the community, um, sometimes hide them. Hiding away children with autism can be disastrous for the children themselves, but it also puts an undue burden on their caretakers. Often the mother is the only caregiver and can't really leave the child with anyone else, so she has the kind of 24-7 burden of caring, can't work, so can't generate any income. The good news is that those beliefs can change. And as they change, it may be possible to ameliorate some of the harm they cause. Hoogsta's research in particular indicates that with proper education and training, community health workers can adopt new views. As they do, families may find it easier to get the support they need. Those educational efforts, Hoogster says, are still ongoing in Ethiopia, but there are good reasons to believe that healthcare workers will continue to grow more familiar with autism and other developmental disorders, allowing them to help alleviate the needs of local families. A very different set of challenges comes into play, however, when the misconceptions are baked into segments of the medical establishment itself. That's very much what's at issue in France. For decades, some French healthcare professionals have viewed autism through the lens of psychoanalytic theory. Despite the clear scientific evidence that autism has biological roots, these practitioners treat it as a fundamentally psychological phenomenon. Marie Glover Bondu experienced that firsthand when she set out to get a diagnosis for her son, Alexis, who was then 11 months old. After multiple visits with unresponsive pediatricians, she and her husband finally found one who referred them to both a psychotherapist and a hospital. The hospital was booked up for months, so they tried the psychotherapist first. Things didn't go well. So we contacted both, but the hospital was longer to have an appointment with. So we started with the psychiatrist who immediately said that uh, Alexis was not, had not, uh, had 
presented no signs of autism and she had no idea what he had, but it wasn't that. Um, and she asked us personal questions about our couple, about our history, about everything other than uh, Alexis. Uh, again, when you have a, a child who, who has developmental delay, who cannot sit before he's one years old, who doesn't speak, who doesn't look at you, who doesn't, I mean, doesn't play, doesn't do anything because my, my son was very severe. And the questions the, the professional was asking is, uh, uh, how many times did you move? How many times did you change house? Uh, doesn't seem very related. So, and she only wanted to uh, work with him uh, without us alone in her office. We couldn't see her sessions. We didn't know what she was doing. In essence, Glover Bondu felt that the analyst was trying to blame her for her son's condition. This idea, the premise that mothers are somehow at fault when they have children with autism, is one that dates back to the 1950s. The most familiar form of this theory held that some women were so-called refrigerator mothers, so chilly that their kids would retreat from the world. Today, we associate this misogynistic construct most directly with a 1967 book called The Empty Fortress by a guy named Bruno Bettelheim, though Bettelheim was really just picking up on a notion that was already in circulation. At the time, Bettelheim was living and working in the United States. For a while, the idea did take hold there, though it was eventually rejected by the scientific establishment as evidence about autism's true origins mounted. Nevertheless, the refrigerator mother hypothesis found a more permanent home in the French-speaking world, where it blended with other forms of psychoanalytic speculation. I think there is um, quite a few places where uh, the tradition, if you like, attributing autism to psychodynamic theory has persisted, unfortunately, in the face of evidence and sort of ethical positions uh, pointing to the contrary. That's Mayada Elsebag, an assistant professor of psychiatry at McGill University. The older ideas, which were very, very dominant uh, across the field uh, and uh, in many areas of the world, um, probably persist uh, when there's sort of limited exposure and, and, and training to anything other than maybe traditional approaches to psychoanalysis. And those tend to be a few French countries, uh, and, and, and sort of that would include France, Switzerland, and a few other places where that sort of tradition persists and continues. As Glover Pondu sees it, the ongoing institutionalization of those misconceptions has held back the progress of autism care in France. For parents like her, that means the immediately available options are sometimes limited. I think in America you have... You have the experience we don't have because we've had psychoanalysis for a long time. So we're a little bit late on treating autism, treating treatment, intervention, solutions. There are, to be clear, French researchers doing valuable, important work on developmental disorders in the country. Among them is Thomas Borgeron of the Pasteur Institute. His inquiries into the genetics of autism have created some surprisingly Freudian conflicts in his own family. I have to say that my father is a psychoanalyst. So he, he, said, he said that I really killed a father by finding genes for autism. Like his colleague, Richard Delorme, Bourgeron says that things are changing in France as the medical establishment moves toward a more scientifically informed model. It's clear that there is still, there, there is still a, a school for psychoanalysis, and, uh, and, uh, but it's, it's really less and less. 
the parents are working a lot and trying to get a scientific view and a medical view of what's going on. Um, and also that the, the, the young uh, psychiatrists, they are most, mostly inclined now and in doing research and trying to challenge the knowledge of what's going on. And, uh, and so I think it's, it's better and better. And uh, the fact that there was this uh, plans for autism, uh, I mean, mostly now the, 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 all the gold standards like ADI and ADAS and, and the thing that can be standardized between centers are used mostly now. So it's better and better. It's not as if everyone is in the wrong, just that it's been difficult for parents to find supportive professionals who are in the right. Glover Bondu, however, agrees that things seem to be getting better. The psychoanalytical school has been, um, parents have been attacking it for a lot. I don't, attacking is not really the, the word, but um, uh, if you get what I mean, pointed as being not uh, relevant in autism. And the state health agency in 2014 said that psychoanalysis is really irrelevant in autism. So it's, it is officially irrelevant and shouldn't be used. So they're more careful now. In many ways, Ethiopia and France couldn't be more different. But in both countries, as we've heard, unscientific prejudices profoundly shaped the ways that autism was understood for decades. And in both countries, those beliefs often had effects on the lives of parents and children. They're also alike in another way, though. In both Ethiopia and France, parents have played an important part in the push to change public opinion and improve treatment options. Waganesh Seleka, for one, says that things simply wouldn't have changed in Ethiopia without the efforts of people like Zemienus. Yeah, I, I would say this as an Ethiopian, when I see the progress of autism intervention in Ethiopia, where we are and now, I would say parents are the only one who takes the lead and who puts a lot of effort. The clearest emblem of that struggle is almost certainly the Joy Center the institution that Yanus founded to help care for children with autism. Yanus, however, is the first to acknowledge that there's still a great deal to be done. Uh, we still have children behind. On my waiting list, I have more than um, 600 or maybe I mean, 800. We have stopped counting children who still look for uh, a place, who still need a center, uh, who still need therapies, who still need... Uh, trainings. So we still have children a lot. Uh, we have, uh, as I told you, we have very limited uh, resource. Uh, we, we have a very uh, financial constraints. So uh, we are not able of accepting those children. Uh, so, I mean, we have to uh, accommodate uh, those children uh, and we have to keep uh, giving trainings to teachers who are going to teach those children. That point about training is striking, not least of all because Glover Pondu identifies a similar need in France. She suggests that providing training often falls on the parents themselves, especially from a financial perspective. The problem is that professional caretakers often learn on the job in the absence of more formal education around autism. And it's typically up to the families themselves to hire those caretakers in the first place. Because we don't have training... Uh, we don't have uh, university trainings. 
people get trained when working with the children. So it's actually parents paying for professionals to get trained. If you, so that's, that's also difficult. Um, so if we could have more trainings, state training, uh, state programs, uh, it would be obviously less for the parents to do that. This gets at one of the most frustrating aspects of long-standing medical misconceptions. Even when they start to go away, they leave a lasting legacy. It takes time to update policies, and it takes time to teach people new skills. In some cases, overcoming those hurdles may require help from elsewhere, though any outside intervention has to be responsive to the specific needs of a given place. As Zileka proposes, that involves really scientifically studying what works best in a given context, wherever you find yourself. It's very important to understand the condition based on the culture and also scientifically, uh, which means have a, a evidence for what you do and, um, and also structuring what you're doing. Uh, that means going from screening all the way, doing the diagnosis and developing intervention and collecting data for the intervention and provide evidence for replication. As Hoekstra suggests, though, we may begin to see surprising connections around the world as the scope of that work continues to spread. I initially was a little bit hesitant and I thought, oh, you know, this this might be a unique Ethiopian experience. How is this relevant to people from Russia or from India? And actually, a lot of these experiences are the same. <laughs> All over the world, there are communities with huge unmet needs. And there are lots of communities where parents are not university educated. And a lot of our autism training is ultimately developed and tested in relatively high income, <laughs> middle class, high educated families. Um, and most communities in the world do not fall in that bracket. So I think there would be a danger to kind of depict this as some some kind of Ethiopia unique or Africa unique thing, because actually this applies to many corners of the world. Ultimately, Elsebag says, we must approach autism as a global challenge. I mean, I think it's certainly quite important that we view autism research as a global endeavor. There's certainly a huge amount of missed opportunity right now. If we were to uh, look at research as somewhat focal or localized um, to North America, that's certainly not the way it should be. So I would just sort of underscore the importance so that um, we continue to see autism um, as a global uh, challenge and that uh, collaborative approaches um, that uh, you know, appreciate and consider this diversity as, as something very positive and, and that um, we're all in this together. This has been an episode of Spectrum Stories, the podcast for Spectrum, the leading source for news and expert opinion on autism research. To read more on autism in Africa and Ethiopia in particular, check out Nicolette Zelidat's article, Why Autism Remains Hidden in Africa. And to learn more about autism in France, read Marta Zaraska's article, France Faces Down Its Outdated Notions About Autism. Both of those are available at spectrumnews.org. Audio for this episode was edited by Mickey Capper. I'm Jacob Brogan.